the 16th. All right, so John chapter 6. Each week, we're, we're letting the Book of Common Prayer and the, uh, the lectionary scripture readings kind of give us our entry point into the story of Christ. And this week, the scripture reference is John chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 51 through uh, 58. Jesus said, or, oh, I started, wait, I skipped down to 53, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us this flesh to eat? His flesh to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It just got weird, didn't it? 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. All right, so what we just read in the New Testament, it is the weirdest, deepest, and most challenging passage in the New Testament. These are the weirdest words you're going to see Jesus speak. This is a, uh, in, in verse 66, you'll notice this story, this passage, this teaching that he's sharing with them actually chased people away. So if you skip down to verse 66, it says, from this time, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Not like people who were curious. Disciples. Like his students, his followers, the people who were going with him everywhere were like, nope, I can't, I can't do this. That, that's, you, you're over the line. You've crossed the barrier. This is not a message that rallies the crowds. This is a message that disperses them, that, that gets rid of people. So let's begin. We've got to begin with the context and this powerful metaphor that Jesus keeps repeating himself here, bread, blood, and flesh, and, and, and taking this in. And that, that's what he keeps coming back to. So we're going to begin with that metaphor, because what he's doing here is he's eating bread. <clears throat> uh, Jesus is using a staple of the Mediterranean diet and a sacred element to the Jewish people to teach them a culture-shifting truth. All right, this is something that's going to, when he starts talking about bread, it's going to get their attention. And here's what he, I'm going to talk, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what he's trying to teach them, and then we're going to talk about why it was so hard for them to understand and why it's so hard for us to understand 20 centuries later, 20 centuries later. So Jesus keeps referring to this bread specifically as himself, telling them that eating his flesh and drinking his blood is what leads to eternal life. So in the Old Covenant, you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, there was this... Uh, the, the law, also known as the Torah. And this is what people used. Uh, it is the old covenant agreement. And a covenant means basically like a spiritual agreement between human beings and God to maintain the relationship. And to maintain the relationship in the Old Testament uh, and to maintain that covenant with God, sacrifices had to be made. What they were given in Torah was specific instructions on how to carry out these sacrifices. It always involved an animal it involved piercing flesh, and it involved flowing blood. That was how people atoned for 
their sins or their mistakes or um, how they maintained this status quo covenant agreement with God. It sounds weird, and it should, because we are 21st century Westerners, and we're looking at a practice that is an Eastern practice that is thousands of years old. All right, there is a lot, there is a lot of difference in these two cultures. If any of you have gone to Athens to work with refugees, even now in 21st century, the, the differences between Eastern culture and Western culture are massive. All right, there's language barriers, there's custom barriers, all types of little intricacies that, that we have to know on how to interact with Easterners because our cultures are so different. So when we read this stuff in scripture, I'm always interested in people who critique scripture um, who have, I, I think that, uh, I sa- I've said this before, uh, atheists and agnostics and, and legalists, religious people, like, you know, kind of the fundamentalists, they both read the Bible with the same flaws. They, they, both, uh, they, they both make the same error. They don't understand context. They don't understand the layers of history and depth and texture that we have to look at when we're studying scripture. It can't just be taken at surface level. It's a mistake to do that. So cultural differences aside, the practice of Old Covenant sacrifice was an external action that involved taking the life of an animal. All right, that, that is a very poor, uh, very quick explanation about what Old Covenant means. Jesus draws upon that tradition by using an object, the bread, something they were familiar with, something that played was a big deal in the Old Testament. All right, When, when uh, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, they survived on bread from heaven. God made it rain bread. You know, one of, his, one of the most famous miracles in the Old Testament. So bread to, to the Israelites was sacred. So when he starts talking about bread, they're going to get excited. That is deeply meaningful. He uses this bread that's deeply meaningful to Jewish people, and he uses it as a springboard into this much deeper life-changing story into what he calls, uh, or what we call the New Covenant, that Christ established that the sacrifice is now not external. It doesn't involve taking the life of an animal or anyone else for that matter. It involves internal sacrifice. We are taking, uh, we, we are ingesting the flesh and blood of Christ. We are spiritually taking in sacrificial love, which is the calling card of Christianity. All right, it's to lay our lives down for others, to put ourselves last. That is what we're taking in. So we are no longer taking the lives of animals, but we now have a spirit living inside of us that is going to allow us to live this otherworldly sacrificial love, to ignore all of these like instincts of self-preservation and to love others and to love God more than ourselves. So in verse 63, down the, you know, we didn't read it, but this is what Jesus said later in this teaching. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. And the Greek word for spirit is zoe poio, which is, it means literally the life-giving one. This is what now, it's not the sacrifice, it's not the old covenant, it's not these old systems and rules that you follow, it is now the spirit that gives you life and it's living inside of you. So Jesus reveals this truth. Torah, the law, the systems and structures and practices um, that these Jewish people know are no longer what lead to life. They were external practices designed to maintain this pathway to God. And now there's no need for that pathway because God has come to you. I'm here. And he's not just, Jesus is like, I'm not just close to you. I'm in you. That's what you're, this is what the relationship is supposed to be like. I'm inside of you. And this 
spirit is now where life flows from. All right, it, it is not outside to inside like old covenant. It is now inside, and all of our actions, all of our decisions, all of our plans and dreams flow from that spirit and that that what's called agape love, that sacrificial love. That's the teaching. All right, that's what he's trying to tell them, and it flies right over their head. So if you look at verse 52, right after he says, he opens this up, they argue amongst themselves, and they're like, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They take it literally. They're like, this guy is weird. He wants us to actually eat his flesh? Like, this is cannibalism. Like, what is going on? They miss the metaphor because they're thinking literally. What I would contend is that they've become so comfortable with their way of life, the rules and the structures and the centuries-old systems of Torah law, that Jesus' metaphor figuratively flies over their head. They, they have got these such rigid comfort zones that they can't think outside of those comfort zones and understand what he's trying to, to teach here. So obedience and dependency on law and familiarity with the Torah system has become an idol for them. It's what they worship. It is what, how they find their identity and their worth. And when you mess with people's idols, you lose them. You want to make someone mad? Find their idol and question it. They will freak out on you. All right? They will get so defensive. You see someone being defensive? You've touched a nerve. You've touched an idolatrous nerve. Something they worship other than God. Um, that's what the law is for them. Um, what, what I would compare it to. All right, so you, um, I always hesitate to share the fact that I, you guys have heard me like ad nauseum talk about I was a public school teacher and one of my practices occasionally I had to venture out into the hallway during passing period and there's always stuff going on that I don't want to see all right and so sometimes this is irresponsible this was not what I was supposed to do sometimes I would walk down the hallway and just stare at the floor and pretend that I had those blinders on like a horse wears because I didn't want to see what was happening I didn't want to hear words because you hear stuff. I'm like, I can't believe I'm hearing that. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that because I don't, I don't want to engage it. Other times, I enjoyed engaging it. It just depended on, you know, sometimes you dress by mood. Sometimes I walk through the passing period by mood, and I didn't want to see stuff that was going on. So I would pretend I would just look at the floor and not allow my peripheral vision to inform anything. I would just march down and go to the restroom or go get a snack wherever I was headed. That's what basically uh, the, the blinders are what the Jewish people are wearing with the, the Torah and the old systems. They are enclosed and locked in on this system and this way of life. What he's doing is he's saying, take the blinders off. You now have, the law is not evil, but you now have permission to take them off. You don't need them anymore because I have fulfilled that. There's no reason to be fearful or to be so uh, addicted to this system. It's now freedom from those so um what he's saying to them is you're missing out on a whole new world to see and experience and jesus uses the bread he kind of like he dangles the bread in their field of vision because they're like oh i know that and then he like draws it outside of the blinders outside of their comfort zones and their way of thinking and he's like you can't you're not going to be able to understand this unless you take those off and you imagine the freedom and the, and, and the uh the depth and the breadth of of life and what I'm trying to lead you to. So he's dangling it in front of them, this metaphorical bread in front of them. They can't see it, grasp it, or experience it until they remove that, until they release their dependency on Torah. That's what he's trying to get them to do. So uh, this is the story of Christ through the centuries. Of him, he's, trying, he's constantly trying to get us our, our attention 
by dangling something in front of us, like maybe it's some circumstances or events or some internal tension, and he's trying to lead us into an understanding and a healing of that. And sometimes we're willing to go and sometimes we're not, right? I mean, sometimes it's, that's uncomfortable. That's way too uncomfortable. Uh, maybe we don't even realize that's a lot of times we don't even realize he's speaking to us and we just flat out get angry with whatever the circumstances and events are. But he's going to constantly draw, draw us out of our comfort zones, out of our generational comfort zones, and he's going to constantly try to destroy our personal idols and our generational idols. So 21 centuries later, these guys didn't get it. All right, they, they, it, A lot of them didn't understand what he was trying to teach, and they left, and like, a peace, I'm out. Uh, but 21 centuries later, we get the opportunity to think, like, what does this mean now? Because the story is still being written. Christ is still trying to catch humanity's attention and draw us into uh, a more beautiful reality of life and how to experience that. So one way we have to, we might be missing out on that is we have to, we kind of have to get some more self-awareness and understand what our personal comfort zones are that need, and, and maybe our personal idols that need to be challenged, that need to be removed so that we can understand what he's trying to lead us into. So I think um, to try to personalize this a little bit, um, I think one thing uh, we as a, I think one uncomfortable thing about Restore uh, is that we are a church whose beliefs, practices, and habits are going to challenge some comfort zones or idols. Like whether it be your understanding of God or how we express that in our practices and our rhythms. So there's been an instinct that has built up in American Christianity over the past years that has ingrained people with this expectation that a church community is like Costco. Like it is like a one-stop shop for all of your spiritual needs and cravings and whatever you walk into a community, they'll have as much and as wide an op, you know, as options as you could possibly imagine. And that is, it's complete consumerism. Uh, we are, we're never going to meet those expectations and we're never going to try to meet them. So it's an unrealistic expectation and it's a very narrow view of what the church actually is. And you're probably still hung up on the fact that I just slammed Costco. You're like, why did you do that? <laughs> I love, I'm with you, I love Costco. Um, I, I really do love, I was in there yesterday, hanging out. <laughs> love Costco. Uh, but that's not what the church is. Uh, you could fill in any store, it's not Amazon, whatever. Of course, you know, I don't want to, probably like, no, no, you've already slammed Costco, don't touch Amazon. Um, <clears throat> one of the key criteria, now to, Personally, now this is where I, I don't know your personal story. I don't know all of your comfort zone. If I sense I might know a comfort zone or an idol, I'll probably say something to you about it. Uh, if we have a, a relationship of trust, and you know that that kind of, I think that's pretty important. You start exposing people's idols. You better they better know that you love them. <laughs> you start calling them out on stuff. It's not going to go well if there's no trust. If there's no love in the midst of that relationship. That's why when you see the stuff happening in Charlottesville, you've got two different groups of people. You've got the racist white supremacist, and you've got the people who are seeking justice as they should. Like this is complete and utter satanic evil. And there's a group of people who are like, that's wrong. But the problem is most people don't know how to combat evil. They don't. They don't know how to reach white supremacists. I'm not saying I do. It's not like I'm like, well, I've led 200 of them to Christ. They're no longer in the KKK. 
Um, actually, I just saw an article where a guy, a, a black guy, actually did that. He he leaves like led like two, over 200 guys out of the KKK through faith. I, I didn't read the article completely, but uh, through relationship. So it's pretty pretty powerful. But anyway, I told yeah, this is what happens when I get away from my notes. I just thought of that, and I don't know where I was. Um, oh yeah, okay. So personal stuff. Um, you got to personalize this. What are those comfort zones or idols that, that Christ might be trying to draw me out of? For me, is I tend to fantasize about a more comfortable uh, existence. I daydream about an easier occupation. My degree is in English. I did not plan on being a pastor. It is not something I ever dreamed about or even wanted. In fact, I've kind of been resistant to it for a long time. It's not something that, this is not what I planned. Uh, and, and sometimes when, when our plans don't, our life doesn't go the way we were planned, it's pretty easy for us to daydream about something that might be easier or more fulfilling or more comfortable. And I know when I'm not like, when the Holy Spirit is not like, when I don't allow the Spirit to really inform my thoughts and my feelings and my actions, I, it's when I start to fantasize about an easier existence. And I, I have more romanticized view of life like oh if I only lived here or did this or had this you know and I my life would be easier it would be so much simpler and relaxing and less pressure filled be wary of that of imagining an easier life or a more pleasant existence because the life where tension and disappointment don't uh, uh, aren't there doesn't exist I'm not saying um, daydreams are evil I'm saying they can quickly get there if you allow your daydreams to morph into an actual pursuit of comfort. An actual, and, and then if you pursue comfort, which is the American dream, that, that, is, that is civil religion in America 101. Pursue happiness. It's nowhere in the New Testament. It's not in there. Stuff Jesus never said, right, Wes? <laughs> pursue happiness. Wes gave me a book today that said stuff Jesus never said. It's really good. <laughs> Um, but our, our daydreams can morph into an actual pursuit of comfort, which can quickly lead to idolatry. So Jesus' words in verse 55 to the Jewish people, to his disciples, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they serve as a powerful wake-up call to daydreaming or fantasizing about a more romantic American dreamish existence. Like his disciples are, are daydreaming about a pre-pictured Messiah, like, this is the box that we want you to stay in. And Torah needs to be involved and sacrifices and the way, things that we, the way we've always done things. And you need to be militant and you need to be political. They've got this box that they want the Messiah to be in. And he doesn't fit in any of that. Right? He blows that box apart with who he is. And that's, he's, he's saying, like, I'm the, he says in verse 55, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Stop fantasizing. Stop daydreaming. Stop putting me in this box. And he, 21 centuries later, it still fits to us. Stop fantasizing. Stop daydreaming. Stop putting me in this box. I'm trying to, I'm shaking you because I'm the real deal. So in John 6, he's saying those external sacrifices and laws are now, are now daydreams and fantastical ex exercises and motions. They're not relevant anymore. In fact, they're going to inhibit your life. That's what comfort zones and idolatry do. Um... For us, the 21st century American, or, or people who are living in America, uh, it may be that career, that pursuit of happiness, that imagined life you're working for and hoping for, that's not real. That's not 
the, the depth and the power that he wants us to have within us. We'll never have that internal peace or wholeness with that pursuit because he's the real food and the real drink that fills and satisfies. So our tendency with this truth is going to be like the disciples in verse 66 who walk away and stop following because we're all going to reach that point in maybe different days or different weeks or different seasons of life where we've had enough of following him. Like, I'm not going any further because it's too uncomfortable or I just flat out don't like it or I just flat out don't trust you. I'm not taking that next step. And we want to cling to what we know. And we have these long years of, pra- of habit-forming beliefs or systems of life that we cling to. I just turned 38 this week. And for a brief moment this week, because I don't pause enough to kind of contemplate stuff sometimes, I thought about what my life was like 10 years ago when I was 28. Like what I believed, how I behaved, um, how I viewed the world, how I viewed the future, like what I thought my future was going to be like. And I look back at my 28-year-old self and I think, I was wearing a lot of blinders. I was living in comfort zones that I've long since left behind. And God's even destroyed a few idols along the way. And the journey continues. Because I didn't know anything 10 years ago. Like that, That's the way it feels now. I know that's not true. But that's the way it feels. It's like, man, it's changed a lot. And now there's some, probably some late 40-somethings in here thinking, like, just wait till you're 48. Because it's freaking nuts. Like, you have no idea. And then 58, then 68. And it's like, um, it, it's amazing what God will do when you allow his, his spirit to, uh, you know, his spirit's living within us. When you, when you take the blinders off and are willing to let him lead you outside of comfort zones and, and stuff that we worship other than him, it's going to change lives, yours included. Um, so he's going to take you places you never imagined, and it's not going to feel good. I, I would love to just say, oh, it's going to be perfect. It's not. It's going to rub against some of your inherent habits and tendencies. So to be blunt, humble up and realize you don't know nearly as much as you think you do. Just If we just say that, you're not as mature as you think you are, and you're not as mature as you're going to be. If we all just say that, we're, then we're willing to step outside of those comfort zones. So that's personal. And to close out, there's also, we have to be aware of the generational comfort zones and idolatry that are around us. So a very relevant example of that is there's a, um, you know, I'm, I referenced Charlottesville and I referenced, we, we've got a, a, a lunatic fringe of white, racist white supremacists, the alt-right um, in our culture, and it's a very few. And then in the middle, what's, what's caused it, there's, there's people that are actually defending that right to free speech and to organize and, that, and the people who are, who are defensive uh, of some of those because they don't think they're racist. Like I'm talking about white Americans. And then there's other people who are like, no, let me point out the racism and the generational racism that has been passed down in our culture because it has. When you found a country on genocide and slavery, there's some generational issues that are going to parlay out of that. And what it's done is it's created this us versus them mentality. Everybody knows the idiots who, sh- who God still loves, and we should too. You love your enemies. That, but it is idiotic. Everybody knows that. But it's the, the large swath of people in the middle who don't know how to dialogue about this stuff, particularly 
because there's a lot of white Americans who don't want to recognize generational sin and comfort zones and privilege and idolatry. And it, we all, and so, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's all, so there are perspectives and habits that are, if I, I was born in Indiana, the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan. I'm a white male American, and if you look at my income, I'm in the richest, most of us are, in the richest 1% of the world. Actually, the richest 0.1% of the world, most people. If you have a household income of 70 grand or more, you are filthy rich by world standards. So we, we've got that, and we've done that in, in historically in, in very evil ways, gained that platform. So that, that's kind of what we're born into, is that, that privilege. So now we've got to think, all right, um, we actually have to acknowledge the fact that I think it's really helpful if you acknowledge as a white person, I'm a racist. Like, I, I have those tendencies. I am born that way. And God is changing that in me. And ha- because of his love inside of me, I'm now realizing I'm humble enough to admit wrong and to repent and, you, and there's a lot of people who are like, but I'm not racist. It's not my personal sin. It's generational. That doesn't mean you don't need to repent of it and acknowledge it. And so we acknowledging it will lead us out of those comfort zones and out of that inborn idolatry. So I'm going to assume the best in here because, honestly, I do think we have a lot of people in here who are willing to like, yeah, I, can, I admit that. But we also have a lot of people in our lives, in our social networks, our families, our friends, who um, aren't willing to acknowledge that who are actually defensive about it. Um, it, defensive about the fact that they've inherited racist tendencies and habits. So how do we engage our families, our loved ones, or our friends who are still clinging to that pedestal of privilege? And I know you would, I would love to give you like, okay, here are three things that are going to work. <laughs> I, that's, if you've been a part of Restore, again, this is not Costco, all right? I don't know. I, I, I'm not your Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to play one. I will give you one tip. You got to do something. You don't do nothing. So what I would what I would say to you is I'm not going to play your Holy Spirit. I'm not going to pretend that I know how to contextualize the unconditional love and truth of Christ to your family or your friendships or your coworkers or social network because I don't know them. I'm not their pastor. You are. Yeah. See that how that goes both ways. You know how I didn't want to be a pastor. You're a Christian. Boom. Ordained. All right. Missionaries. Pastors. You're their missionary. God has sent you into their lives to reveal himself through you to them. And it's when we let that overwhelming love of the Holy Spirit dwell within us, that's when stuff starts happening. It's like we let that seep out into our relationships. We're going to start to understand, how do I break these barriers, these generational habits? How do I remove one brick at a time from these walls so that people will understand what God's trying to do in them and in the world because the divide and the hatred and the, you know, it's growing and the world doesn't need more people to participate in that. The world needs people who are going to build the bridge and bring people back together. And it's when, you know, obviously I'm a Christian, so my, my bias is I think Jesus has a lot to do with that. And I think his strategies are particularly um, perfect when it comes to how to do that. Um, but I think that happens when we acknowledge that. So Carrie and Ryan are going to come up. We're going to close in a song here. Um, 
the lyrics are going to remind us of the power of the love moving inside of us personally and communally. All right, we've saved the Lord's Supper for the end of our gathering today. So we, uh, the Lord's Supper, you'll see some trays over here that have some bread and, and some juice. Um, the Lord's Supper is the bread and the wine. It's the symbolic flesh and blood of Jesus that unites us. So no matter, again, no matter where you're out on your spiritual journey, we invite everybody to the table at Restore because that's what Jesus did. Um, I hope you'll join us at the table by taking the bread and the wine with us. And the trays are going to pass. You guys can go ahead and start passing those. And if you want to participate, take a piece of bread in the cup. And during the last song, um, we're going to sit today. And during the last song, I want us to just dwell upon the lyrics of this song that Carrie's going to sing. You're, you might recognize it. Um, it's In the Name of Love by U2. Uh, it's written about MLK. What's really cool about this song is that the practices and the beliefs of Martin Luther King Jr. are Jesus's. It's a guy who allowed the Holy Spirit to flow through his heart and mind, who loved his enemies, and because of that, decisions and actions were put into place that started bringing barriers down. He, he's a, an inspirational figure, but we're focusing our attention on Christ and the message of Jesus and how when we have that love inside of us, how is that going to, I want us to dwell upon the, the, the cup and the, the bread. As we take Christ in, think about the people you know and you care about that God has called you to be in relationship with. How is that flesh and that blood, that sacrificial love, how is that going to flow out of you and into them?